0: Hey, everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode.
1: That's the ideal we aspire to, is to get to a point or to be at a point where we can apply the rule of law, the rules, the norms, the guardrails in a way that doesn't rely on partisan influences.
0: Today's political environment makes it easy for some to dismiss a congressional investigation or a governmental prosecution as just politics. Part of the journalist's job is to be a watchdog on the government. I'm Michael O'Connell, this is It's All Journalism. Anyone who has been paying attention to the escalating legal troubles of former President Donald Trump may have heard critics say that everything is political or both sides are to blame, or even that investigations into high-ranking government officials are making it harder for the attorney general or lead prosecutors to stay out of politics. But none of that is true, according to a recent report from Protect Democracy. Today I'm talking to two of the authors of that report, Christy Parker and Anne Tyndale. Christine Ann, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Okay, great. Just so everybody knows who's talking, let's let's find out a little bit about each of you. Ann, let's start with you. What led to your current role as counsel at Protect Democracy?
2: Sure. I would say I started out with what was a very typical Washington lawyer career. I was in private practice for a bit. I also worked on Capitol Hill and then found myself in a job In the executive branch that I I really enjoyed, I was at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but when Trump was elected, I realized that the job of a government attorney might change pretty dramatically. And I thought hard about whether, you know, staying on would be the right thing to do and whether I could still do good public service or whether I should leave and stand up for the ideals that brought me to public service in the first place, but from the outside. And Protect Democracy was forming at that time. And I jumped on board.
0: How about you, Chris? The same question. What led you to your current role at Protect Democracy?
1: So I always wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, and I pretty much always wanted to do it in the civil rights division at the Department of Justice. So after I went to law school, I pursued what was my dream job. I started at DOJ actually in the civil division, which was a really useful training ground for me to get to the place that I ultimately wanted to be. And after four years in the civil division, I went to the criminal section of the civil rights division, and I found that I actually had a really good grounding in the way that the department works, because what I did in the civil division was really defend federal jurisdiction and executive branch authority to some extent. But in the civil rights division, I enforced the federal criminal civil rights laws, which include 18 U.S.C. 241, which is one of the charges in uh, the current indictment of the former president. And really, that was my mission-driven work. I wanted to hold public officials accountable to their oaths upholding the Constitution to demonstrate that no one was above the law to afford everyone their civil rights. And I was very happy doing that. Although in the course of my 19-year career at DOJ, I definitely saw many of the things that we are now seeing full scale in the erosion of our democratic principles and our respect for institutions and all of those sorts of things. But I think a few months after the election of Donald Trump, I had sort of similar feelings that Anne had about, you know, what to do about that situation. And for me, it just finally became, and I'm really actually I'm very happy for the many people who did stay at DOJ and in the government writ large and tried to do, you know, the right thing and upholding their oaths. But for me, it just became a feeling of I feel like I can do the things that I wanted to do at the department, defending the rule of law, upholding people's civil rights, upholding our democratic institutions at this juncture in our history better from the outside than I could from the inside. And I was very glad to learn that some prescient people had formed this organization called uh, Protect Democracy.
0: More so than a lot of places, Protect Democracy kind of, I guess, nails its identity by its name. Could one of you sort of explain how you protect democracy or the ways you protect democracy?
2: You know, we take an integrated advocacy approach to everything we do. We, you know, litigation can serve our mission on its own, but it also has to work in tandem with legislative advocacy, with communications campaigns. And, you know, we strive to follow Wayne Gretzky rather than the five-year-old soccer team, go to where the puck is headed, (laughs) not where it is, and anticipate ways in which threats to a democracy will emerge and how to stave them off.
0: Christy, you know, what led to the two of you writing this report, how to assess the difference between the rule of law and the abuses of power?
1: When we think about what Protect Democracy's mission is, which is Preventing our democracy from sliding into a more authoritarian form of government. One of the things that we've really focused on as an organization is how to hold up the fundamental democratic ideal that no one is above the law to include the people who occupy the highest positions in our in our politics, but also how to balance that against, the very real and extensive power that the federal government has to especially enforce the law against individuals and the criminal law, I think in particular. We wanted to, first of all, really just came to an organizational conclusion that in order to foster and further that principle that no one is above the law and that we live in a rule of law society, that we needed to advocate for the idea that if the president of the United States does something unlawful, that he or she needs to be held accountable for that. And we also needed to balance that against the concerns that the people who founded our system of government had from the very beginning, that government powers would be used, you know, inappropriately to further political objectives. So we wanted to write something that would help people analyze both how can you hold a a person like that accountable and how can you know when our government institutions that are under political leadership are acting independently and appropriately to enforce the rule of law and not, you know, abusing their powers to harm a political opponent and of course this all came very much came to a head on January 6th 2021 when we all witnessed the unfolding of whether you call it a crime at the time or not was a coup attempt to overturn the results of a lawful election. So that really just brought that to a head and it gave us the impetus that, well, we need to we need to put something out there that gives people a tool so that they can try to understand how our institutions are supposed to operate, how we're supposed to enforce that principle, and to evaluate whether the right things are happening or not. And, you know, similarly from the standpoint of of congressional investigations, which we also have a lot of those going on right now and have had for quite some time.
0: So I mean was there an indication just in the way media was covering the events that have, have occurred over the last few years that showed that there were a lot of people who didn't understand the rule of law or that this concept of rule of law or that perhaps they just viewed it all as as political.
1: Yes. I mean I think that our concern was that we hear a lot of talk and I think that it is true, you know, that we live in an increasingly polarized country where, you know, things are very much one side or the other in the minds of a lot of people. And our concern was that the potential that Donald Trump would be investigated and charged for crimes based on what happened on January 6th or before would be covered in the media and perceived by the public as simply, you know, one side in a political tit for tat, that whether this happens or not is entirely dependent on who politically is in charge of the Department of Justice, that it's all about politics, and that there's no way you can cut through that idea to get to the question of, you know, are there some objective criteria we can look at here to see whether or not this person actually should be prosecuted regardless of politics. And of course, that's the ideal we aspire to is to get to a point or to be at a point where we can apply the rule of law, the rules, the norms, the guardrails in a way that doesn't rely on you know, partisan influences. So yes, that was our key concern was the, just the concern that all of this would be perceived as well it's political both sides do it if the democrats did something you know and the republicans were in charge they'd prosecute there isn't any objective reality here that we can look at and say this is the right or the wrong thing to do in terms of upholding the rule of law
2: you know often you see in reporting on on even the you know indictments we've seen in the last week and over the summer A suggestion that because an investigation has political ramifications, it is necessarily politically motivated. And that's just not true. If we can't accept investigations and even prosecutions where there are political consequences, you know, there's no question that being indicted will have some impact on Donald Trump's ability to run a presidential campaign, but if if the standard is, if it has political implications, it's overly politicized and it shouldn't be done, that means that, that our candidates for office and office holders can't be prosecuted. That can't be the rule in a system that is ostensibly based on the rule of law.
0: So has this exposed that maybe our, our system of checks and balances, that there's a weakness here, that the founders didn't anticipate how powerful parties would play in the way our government op- operates?
2: I mean, I think that's definitely something we have seen over the last couple of decades. You know, I'm, I was a political science major, but I would not call myself a political scientist. Nevertheless, I think the you know, our system of checks and balances is, is set up where the branches of government check each other. You know, those are the most sort of fundamental and crucial checks that we have. But when, when you have a... Faction in Congress that is more loyal to a president of the same party than to a congressional, you know, Congress as an institution, those checks stop working as well. And, you know, the the most effective kinds of congressional investigation are certainly those where there is bipartisan support and a commitment to uphold the institution's prerogatives in order to play the proper role of congressional overseers, when that breaks down by party instead of by institution, it's just not as effective.
0: So the reason I I wanted to bring you on the podcast is you know this is a podcast about journalism, and you know the founding fathers perceived uh, the press as another check, but now you know as the country is politically divided, then clearly we have different factions or perceived different factions in media, some supporting President Trump, some supporting the rule of law, you know, Congress, the administration, the investigations. I mean, how much do you credit this to media outlets not sort of stepping up and being more objective and covering this in a more realistic way?
1: You know, I think much in the same way as Anne was speaking about how Donald Trump has really highlighted some of the Weaknesses in our system of checks and balances that the framers of our constitution didn't really foresee. I think he's also just highlighted some of the weaknesses in s- certain, you know, journalistic practices that we've all gotten used to. From uh, you know, I won't bother with Fox News or anyone to the, you know, outer bounds of Fox News or anyone on the you know on the far left media but let's talk like what we call the mainstream media their model is to be objective they want to present things in an objective manner not be perceived as political and that's a good thing there's nothing wrong with that they should be objective but we've just reached a point in our politics where the political divisions and the political scheming on one side or the other has moved beyond simply trying to gain advantage for one party over the other and has really moved to a fundamental dispute between people who accept democratic principles and the rule of law and a set of people who don't accept that. And I think that is where the challenge comes in for journalists today, is in in really getting at that issue, and I think taking the position or understanding that they don't need to be objective or both sidesy about whether we have a democracy or not. <laughs> but it's okay to come at questions in American society, in the United States from the standpoint that democracy is our form of government and the one that we aspire to perfect and that you don't have to be one side or the other with respect to someone who is seriously attacking the very idea that we have government by the people or that we even have a system of checks and balances. So I think that's the real challenge for, for journalists is in, is in getting away from covering sort of the horse race, like who is helped by Donald Trump being indicted. Is Donald Trump being indicted, helping his fundraising? Is it helping him in the polls in the Democratic Party? And really getting at the question of, you know, what are the stakes for our democracy (laughs) around the things Donald Trump has done and the perceived need on the part of the Department of Justice to actually charge him with crimes for those things? Like, what are the stakes of that? You know, not who does it help in a political horse race or, feeling the need to equate one side with the other necessarily if one side is saying things that are objectively not
0: correct. That's been a challenge, I think, for a lot of journalists. It certainly was in the early days of the Trump administration because in the lead up to the election, you know, every time said Trump said something beyond reality, it was reported on all the news outlets. And so basically whatever his message was, everybody was sort of spreading it. Or they were showing his speeches or, or rallies, you know, live and not questioning things that maybe later later on they could verify as, as being untrue. I was surprised that there were so many outlets, some major outlets, that, that had a really hard time with saying that the president was lying. And part of that was the way that the press traditionally covered politics and covered, you know, the White House. In some small ways. I think we're getting away from a lot of the problems. The balance issue, I think was certainly the one of the big ones. The balance in the in the horse race thing that we we have a tradition of the way that we cover politics, it's always, you know, A or B and, you know, B gets an opportunity to say something. But if journalists need to be able to step up and challenge and say, well, that's not, you know, what are your sources or, you know, I can show you some facts that that doesn't work or you don't even report it because why would you report lies? That's tough for some journalists. So what are the limits of power for the executive branch in Congress when it comes to investigating and prosecuting wrongdoing of public officials?
1: Well, with respect to, I'll take prosecuting and then Anne can take Congress, but the limits with respect to prosecuting a public official are effectively the same limits that apply to prosecuting anyone. So in a rule of law society, the fundamental questions around whether a person should have the full power of federal law enforcement brought down upon them is what are the facts and what is the law and how have similarly situated other people been treated. So the executive branch has actually developed over time, you know, it has the laws that are passed by Congress. But it also at the Department of Justice, you know, they have a set of very extensive guidelines that govern how they do their work called the Justice Manual. And within the Justice Manual, the principles of federal prosecution. So every prosecutorial decision should be based on do we have somebody here that the evidence shows has violated the elements of a statute prosecuted by congress and in exercising our discretion to decide whether a federal prosecution should should be brought are we treating this person the same as we would treat any other person who's similarly situated and those guidelines also contain some important do's and don'ts and you know one of the don'ts is actually that you're not supposed to base a prosecutorial decision around a person's political opinions, their political associations, or their political status, because that would undermine the idea that no one is above the law. And there are also some additional safeguards that have been put in place, particularly since Watergate, to help police the line between the appropriate, you know, political leadership of our government and the parts of it that should function independently of partisan politics. So for instance, there are supposed to be and typically have been policies in the post-Watergate administrations that govern the kinds of contacts the White House can have with the Justice Department or the kinds of contacts other political leaders like Congress can have with the Justice Department and vice versa. And that is meant to create a safeguard against partisan politicians directing law enforcement in specific matters. So there are all sorts of guardrails like that that are supposed to be observed. And you really actually can take out the principles of federal prosecution or the White House contacts policy and ask yourself as a journalist or as a person, is the Department of Justice following these? And that can give you a good indication of whether they're behaving in the right way.
0: And I would imagine, and because a lot of people might just have the perception that the attorney general is going to do whatever the president says, but that's really not the case. Well, they're not supposed to.
1: That's right. I mean, our history, and again, especially post-Watergate, where, you know, a lot of these potential holes in our system were first surfaced by a particularly abusive executive. You know, the view of the attorney general's role has been very much not... The president's lawyer or the president's lackey. This is the person who oversees the enforcement of all of federal law and is supposed to be enforcing it on behalf of the United States of of America and the American public. So the attorney general's role is not to further the personal political agenda of the president. And, you know, again, there's a tension there because he is a politically a political appointee or she is of the president. And that is to hold that person accountable to the public through elections. But again, even though they are appointed by a political person and a partisan who won an election, it really is their job to see their role as very much independent of the White House. And anytime you see somebody who questions that independence, as we have people doing now, then they're really questioning a fundamental tenet of our system of checks and balances and safeguards around ensuring that federal power is not abused.
0: So Anne, on the congressional side of of the prosecution or investigation, you know, what safeguards are there there?
2: Congress is obviously a very different institution than the Department of Justice or the executive branch. And as a result, has different and, in fact, maybe more limited guardrails available, by the same token, it also is not an institution that puts people in prison or, you know, certainly hasn't for a long time. The sort of gravamen of any congressional investigation is serving a legislative purpose. You know, what do we need to understand? What does the public need to understand? What do legislators need to understand in order to, propose new laws or amend existing laws to fill gaps. We've certainly seen plenty plenty of gaps where, you know, maybe our norms should be hardened into laws in the past decade, but also to make sure that the funds that Congress has appropriated are being spent appropriately. And so the goals of the investigation are different than they would be in a prosecution. And, you know, the Supreme Court has sort of investigated, has considered the scope of a legislative purpose in limiting congressional investigations. And they have found that, you know, there is a limit, but it's a hard one for Congress to reach. And they're going to offer a lot of deference to Congress in defining its purpose. And I tend to think of the the limits on congressional investigations being more in, in terms of their effectiveness, it's certainly true that there is some bomb throwing in Congress that does not actually lead to the gathering of information that serves any particularly useful purpose for the American public. That's a waste of congressional time, and it's a waste of time that could be spent serving serving constituents. But, you know, members of Congress are also held accountable by their constituents. And if they're wasting their time, then they should be voted out of office.
0: That's what's supposed to happen. Um, <laughs> in I theory, guess. yes. In theory, in theory. We can talk, um, we can talk about gerrymandering yeah, we can talk some about, other yeah, time. Get, yeah, we we're all thinking the same thought. Yeah, in gerrymandered states. So but you know, some people would criticize the January 6 commission, that investigation as a a political stunt, I guess, or a political action. Where did they sort of get their authority from? What was it they were providing?
2: This is another example where just because something has political implications doesn't mean it's improperly political. And Congress is a political branch. And you know, so in that sense, there's very little they do that doesn't have some political valence. That said, January 6th, if anything, was an assault on the Capitol. And the notion that, you know, it's improperly political for Congress to investigate how the seat of of our democracy came to be attacked would be a a very narrow view (laughs) of the purview of congressional investigators. Another thing I would point out about that committee is that in a way that has actually been missing from investigations over the past decade or so, it was a bipartisan affair. Now you know, so to Liz, speak. <laughs> Liz Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger may not be the favorites of Donald Trump, but they are certainly conservative Republicans by any meaningful definition. Could they be called otherwise? An important thing here: their staffs worked together. You know, there wasn't a Democratic report and a Republican report. There wasn't a you know Democratic round of questioning and a Republican round of questioning you know, they really worked together to investigate and report to the American public on one of the most important events, certainly in in my lifetime, and maybe in the Republic.
0: Yeah, I agree. Before we wrap up, I did want to sort of touch on the fact that one of you mentioned this week, which is sort of put this in context. We had uh, four charges against the former president. How well do you think that the media has covered that?
1: That's a big question because there's a lot of media. I mean, I have seen some reporting that I think was actually very insightful and good. I've seen some analysis pieces where the reporter really dug in and sought expert advice to try to understand what the charges are and also to try to understand what some of the defenses that Trump's attorneys have been discussing are, and to report on them in a way that's not simply, well, the government says this, and Donald Trump's attorney says that, but like, here's the law, here's how it's been enforced. Here's how the First Amendment applies to false statements, not simply just saying Trump is going to make this into a First Amendment case. So there's definitely been some very good Reporting along those lines. But I think we're getting to a place now where, now that we have these indictments and a lot of our politics is going to be conducted through a court case, we've reached a new challenge for journalists who, some of whom may be lawyers or may have a lot of experience covering federal law enforcement, but others of whom who may not, who will really need, I think, to. Do their homework in order to cover these trials in a way that isn't excessively politicized and, you know, both sides. So, for instance, like, you know, if you put on Donald Trump's attorney on one of the Sunday morning shows and he talks about all of the various ways in which Trump is going to defend the case it's important for the journalists to know like, well, what are the things that would actually be allowed to be discussed in a federal court case? Because not everything that's admissible in the court of public opinion is going to be admissible in a court. So if Trump's attorney says something like, I'm going to retry the whole 2020 election and subpoena all these people to prove that Donald Trump really believed he won the election. No, he's not. I can tell say very definitively that he's he can send out subpoenas but no federal judge is going to let him relitigate the objective reality that Joe Biden won the 2020 election or call witnesses to talk about who won the 2020 election. That will not happen. And I think they also need to understand things like how will a First Amendment defense work in this case? The first person that's going to be presented to is going to be the judge because it's a question of law. And she is going to make a ruling one way or the other. And I I think that the ruling is going to be that none of the charges in the indictment are protected by the First Amendment. And at that point, He's not going to be allowed to argue to a jury a legal issue that the judge has already decided. So those are things that it's really important for reporters to know and to have good resources to go to to help them understand so that they're educating the public about what's really going to happen in these legal proceedings and not allowing you know one side or the other to behave as though there's a case out there that isn't the real case and not having cameras in federal court, that's going to make that especially important because the public is going to, to know what happened in the courtroom, you know, filtered through the media.
2: I don't have an answer to the conundrum for journalists, but one of the telltale signs that they they're getting close to both sides saying is when you ask a series of people to defend a particular side and they will not do it to not repeat the mistake of the Trump administration years and, uh, you know, have Kaylee McEnany on because the first five reasonable guests wouldn't take the bait. Now's the time to say I'm not, I'm not finding anyone, anyone who will defend this position.
0: Yeah. Thank you uh, both for coming on and talking about this. This, obviously, it's a very important story and your report offers a lot of insight to anyone who'd be interested in particularly these cases, but also, you know, how the press can do better in its coverage of, of complex political things like this, political or legal, or both. Anyway, Chrissy and Ann, thank you for coming to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bilefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.